1: Time now for the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area.
2: My guest today grew up in the church, graduated from Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, spent 16 years engaged in outreach to college students right here in the San Francisco Bay Area, and more than a decade ago pastored and planted a brand new church. Joining us now is the senior and founding pastor of Awakening Church of San Jose. We're pleased to have with us today, Pastor Ryan Ingram. Pastor Ryan, great to have you on the program.
3: Uh, Great to be with you. Thanks so much for having
2: me great opportunity to talk about what God has been doing, and, and maybe to do that, kind of take us back. Um, as I mentioned, you you grew up in the church, and I guess yeah. let's just kind of let the cat out of the bag right early on here. We're not going to spend too much time talking about Dad, because we're going to talk about your ministry today, Sure, but uh, certainly longtime listeners of KFAX uh, are very familiar with Chip Ingram, your dad, who I understand not too long ago retired from full-time pastoring at Venture Church and is now in the radio ministry and speaking and book writing full-time, I understand.
3: Yeah, I like to say it is he went down to one full-time job, (laughs) uh, and he's you know he was long time senior pastor Santa Cruz Bible Church, where I grew up, uh, and many people know and love him here in the bay there and then obviously adventure christian um, but he's always had living on the edge his international discipleship ministry that reaches you know literally millions of people across the country, and so uh, that's his full time um, gig right now, and it's wonderful, and he's doing great
2: good, glad to hear it. Was this progression for you then kind of a natural thing, having grown up in the church and and been under the influence of of a forward-thinking pastor like your dad, that at some point you knew inevitably God was going to have a hand on you in leading you into full-time ministry?
3: I think others saw it, obviously, in me before I saw it, typical for many of us. But growing up and uh, It wasn't that I didn't want to be a pastor, but um, I didn't want to be a pastor. (laughs) I I was a musician and loved um, just getting to be in that scene, and so I didn't see myself really as a pastor, but had a love for the Bible, love for God's Word, and just took one step, you know, going to study at Moody, and then another step, and being called into ministry and answering that call, and uh Started out in youth ministry, then college ministry, and then here we are, uh, never wanted to plan a church, and now we get part of a little over a decade uh, leading and planning an awakening church.
2: So it was all in kind of gradual steps along the way. And I think the Lord oftentimes leads us that way. If, if we knew in the very beginning where his ultimate plan would lead us, we'd probably be so frightened we'd, we'd run out of church or run in the opposite direction like our hair is on fire, I would suspect.
3: Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I think he's so gracious and kind that, you know, we want him to show us the whole picture, step four, five, and six. And often he just shows us step one and calls us to obey and follow Him. You know, I look back in our planning time, I'm reminded of Abraham when, you know, God said to him, go to the land, I'll show you. And I think the challenge for us is we want God to show us and then we'll go. And it's no go, take the step what I've been clear on. And as you take that step, I'll show you the next step. And that is how God leads us. and that what it means to walk by faith.
2: Exactly, and that that really is that faith component then, that, that, you know, if the Lord spelled everything out in very clear steps, we would know what to do, what to anticipate, how to react, and how to act, and yet it then vacates that component of having to put our trust in him that that literally as we venture out and whatever it is God might call us to do it be it working in the world of of business or trade or ministry reliance upon him to lead each step of the way is not only putting him first and foremost in our lives, but I think also giving us an opportunity to really understand what it means to truly be entirely reliant upon him, which is really what he wants out of us. He, he, he wants us to surrender it all, doesn't he? Absolutely.
3: Yeah. And that's how relationships built. Uh, It's not a transaction to get what you need. It's a dynamic relationship with him, and it it is in that faith and trust process that you learn to trust him and build that intimacy and dependence
2: upon him. Let's talk about the prospect or the challenge of introducing him to others. Uh, We mentioned that, uh, my goodness, uh, pushing on nearly two decades ago, uh, you and your wife, Jenny, uh, began the outreach ministry of awakening kind of w- within the confines of Westgate Church as yeah. youth and college outreach. And I would imagine in that period of time, you've seen some pretty dramatic changes in terms of we've gone from being largely a society that that generally accepted God, maybe we, we grew up in the church, although perhaps have stepped away from it. Now we've got a whole new generation for whom, especially in a region like the Bay Area where we have so many transplants from other parts of the world, we're beginning to share our faith uh, on kind of the initial foundation that we all agree that God exists, but who is he and does he have a plan for my life? And if so, what does that look like? No, we have to take even a further step back and begin the introduction of the notion of even the concept of the existence of God, or even, get this, even more challenging perhaps to some, the concept of truth that these sure. days there seems to be, you know, a fluidity within the notion of truth that historically wasn't there, and, and I'm curious your your perspective on that impact of ministry in a place like the South Bay and to collegiate and younger people.
3: Yeah, I, I'm so grateful to have been and still. In many ways, our church is still very young fifty percent eighteen to thirty years of age uh I feel like that's really the front lines um today of those that are um in this cultural shift that is rapidly changing on a daily basis um there and so I think we have an incredible opportunity as the church to stop answering the questions that people were asking in the you know 90s or early 2000s and begin to wrestle with the questions that they're asking and start from their starting point help them understand like uh, the concept of truth well okay let's talk about that because at the end of the day is truth is just what happens when we hit reality (laughs) when we come you know face to face with reality and the consequences of that that's that's what happens and so uh, we begin to have those conversations, and I, I actually think, even though there is that rise of nuns and duns that everyone's talking about, there, there is still the spiritual craving and hungering, and you see spirituality on the rise, and a searching for transcendence, a searching for something beyond myself. Um, the soul is always on this search for wholeness, and and we have... Uh, the answer in Jesus. Now we have to learn how to communicate that in a way uh, for them to hear and receive that. And so uh, that's the exciting prospect. I think the challenge is over COVID and all the division and challenges that we walk through, I think followers of Jesus have really um, privatized their faith and been shamed into not talking about Jesus in the workplace uh, and so, how do we help equip those that are in the workplace or on the university campuses to share Jesus in a really winsome way
2: that That challenge of being engaging and, and maybe running contrary and I, and i 'm glad you kind of set the the stage for our conversation today that that sense of foundation that though we may have perceptions about where the nuns are today. And I think if, if you look at some of these surveys that are put out by organizations like George Barna and others, would perhaps lead people to conclude that, well, we're, we're kind of moving into a, a day and an age when technology is leading, the desire for connectivity and relationship is is on the on the wane. After all, young people would rather text than phone and, and the personal one-on-one engagement that used to be out of necessity because that was the only means we had to communicate has all kind of fallen by the wayside or into the history books. But that really, that, that, that notion defies the fundamental point that you just made. And that is that in each and every one of us, we are still nevertheless wonderfully made by him in his image, having breathed very life into us. And I think that innate desire We may not be able to articulate it, but that innate desire to want to have fellowship with our creator is still there. We may not know how to look for it. We may not know what to call it, but nevertheless, it's still there. And so I I wonder if maybe there's a a fundamental flaw in our approach of thinking that, ah, young people today, they don't don't want to be connected in true relationship. They don't even know how to do that. Talk to that point, if you would.
3: Yeah, and I think it's that thought That is creating such a big divide. Uh, And one of the things I talk to those that, uh, you know, I'm 42, so I don't even fit into the demographic of our church uh, uh, because it's so young. And there's many people that come that are, you know, 50, 60, 70. And then looking at this younger generation, the call for them is to be generational missionaries. Is to go my role and my purpose is there's a whole generation, especially in Silicon Valley, young people, well over 100,000 between the age of 18 and 25 years of age, just in San Jose alone, uh, that desperately need Jesus, that would be considered an unreached people group by all the data and standards. And so if we begin to have this focus and view of like, uh, they're an unreached people group, what would you do as a missionary? You would study their culture, their language, begin to understand their values, and then bring the gospel in a contextualized way that makes sense to them instead what we're doing in the church is they don't care they don't want it they don't and so then there's this divide and young people 20 year olds showing up to a church that doesn't uh communicate the gospel in a way that makes sense to them and they just walk away disillusioned as it as it done and so that is just part of it for us of like okay this generation one of the beautiful parts they have a deep desire for authenticity and and it may not be expressed always in the way that everyone goes, well, that's wonderful. But man, the church needs authenticity, doesn't it? They have a deep desire for justice in the world. Here's what I know. We can argue all around justice. Jesus is all about justice. Justice for the poor, the disenfranchised, the marginalized, the least of these. It's throughout his parables. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Now we're starting to tap into some of their values that they absolutely have that are a hundred percent in line with the gospel Now the way it's expressed is it aligned all the time absolutely not but now we're we have common ground and then this intrinsic need I think the church has an incredible competitive advantage because um in a digital world in a disconnected we're never more connected but we're more never more disconnected uh the human craving for transcendence and presence is, is just being amplified in the soul. And that's the worship experience. That's the gathering of the saints. That's what we're longing for, not just digital content to, um, you know, consume. But young people, they they're over that. They got that all day long. What they need is a life-changing encounter with God
2: what i'm struck by in in what i'll describe as your missional approach to this is number one how cyclical it is in that if we look at the early church it was all about going to other tribes and other tongues and other people groups. And the articulation that the gospel is is for both Jew and and Gentile, the slave and the free, it is for everyone. And historically, America as a missionary-sending nation has understood what it's about to go to another land where you don't speak the language, don't understand the culture, but learn about them, figure out how they communicate, Learn what will resonate with them in expressing the gospel message, the methodology of that expression. Of course, the message itself is timeless. And then to present that gospel and reach others for Christ. And I think what you're suggesting is this notion of sort of business as usual. They went to church when they were kids. Of course, they're going to figure it out. No. Instead, to take that missional approach and say, yeah, they, they, kids today compared to baby boomer generation— certainly use other means of communication. Some might argue have a whole different language. So what should we do? I think it's exactly what, what you've just suggested, and that is to take a missional approach. Well, let's learn their language, let's figure out their culture, and then figure out how to deliver this timeless message.
3: Absolutely. And that's one of the challenges that we talk about is we need a first-century uh, Judeo-Christian mindset in a 21st century world, and we've imported rather a 20th century Judeo-Christian, and we have to get back to the early church because uh, we can bemoan, okay, there used to be a, a broad sense of maybe cultural values and belief in God, or we can go, no, we're the light of the world. Jesus placed us here for this particular time on the planet, and he wants to use us to spread his love and grace. And that's exactly what the first church, the early followers, were in an incredibly hostile environment. And that's where the church thrives, by the way, whether we like it or not. The church thrives in hostile environments, and the gospel spreads like
2: wildfire. Do you see differences today than where you were even, say, 10 years ago because of some of the stuff we've touched on, like technology, and in particular, the fact that we're seeing this changing demographic? For example, I just read the other day that now in the San Francisco Bay region, uh, the Asian community is one of the largest population groups that we have.
3: Yeah, I mean, the landscape's constantly changing, and I think in the technological age, it's changing more rapidly than ever. Um, And I think one of the exciting parts, again, about Silicon Valley is what happens here affects the whole world. So, as pastors and as followers of Jesus, realizing that our influence and impact then spreads to these high-tech companies that are, um, you know, in everyone's pocket and apps that uh, everyone's using. And so we we have the ability of reach and impact like I think no other place on the planet. And I think the church, uh, our vision and calling is to awaken this generation to new life in Jesus. So it's, it's really that the tip of the spear is 18 to 25 year olds. Uh, we, we say it this way that we're a four generation church. That's for this generation.
2: Let's talk a bit about what God is doing at awakening church. Um, active stuff going on. I, you guys have, you know, not only that, that, that local heartbeat, which I love, but also a global heartbeat. You're actively involved in uh, outreach in Haiti. And of course, right there in the greater South Bay community, a homeless outreach, food pantry, boys, a lot going on. Just kind of give us a, yeah. a bit of a thumbnail sketch, if you would, Pastor Ingram, as to what God is doing at Awakening. Yeah, a lot,
3: a lot of exciting things. Uh, it began with, we do meet on a high school campus. We've been there now just about 11 years. Um, and we said it's more than a place to meet, but a people to love. And so where we meet is our, is our first mission field uh, and ministry. And so we adopted that high school. Uh, and at first it was met with suspicion because if you're gonna love somebody, what do you want? And we said, there's no strings attached. And so we love and serve the faculty there, the students, um, every, every single we're just going to do it this next week. At the end of every semester, we throw a um, bring in a taco truck and end of the year, uh, end of the semester party for the teachers. Um, uh, we did uh, paid for college application fees for Students who couldn't afford to go to college- you know pay for those colleges eighteen thousand dollars this last year uh, got students who wouldn't have afforded to be able to even do the fee to be able to apply and get into college. Um, we do uh, food pantry every other week on Delmar highs campus um, and so I mean I could go on and on. there's lots going on there. The most exciting part is the relationship we've developed where uh their administration say awakening church is family and, and like, if there's a need and get an email from the principal or from another teacher of a family need, we, we help individual families consistently. Most of our benevolence money goes towards those families at the school. And so that's exciting for us. And just one way, I, I think I would, if more churches could just adopt one school, the impact we would have And just go for the long run. And it's not about getting more people into your church. It's just about loving the community the way we think Jesus would love them. And then leaving the results up to him.
2: And I love it because it's all about the church being the church, that relational engagement and taking the non-transactional approach. I mean, these days it seems as if everything that we do is, well, if I give you this, what do I get? And vice versa. Instead, if you look at at God's example, he said, guess what? It's free for all. We've done all the work. What can you do to be saved? Absolutely nothing can you do to be saved, because it's all provided you in Christ Jesus. And I think that that really ought to be the, the guide, not only for the way we understand our relationship with him, but also the way we understand our relationship with others. That it's not about giving to get, it's about giving simply out of love and compassion and impacting the community where God has called us to right there. I want to remind listeners that, again, service times for Awakening Church, Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m. and again at 11.15 a.m. and all kinds of stuff going on, as you heard Pastor Ryan Ingram mention a moment ago. More details, too, available on the web at awakeningchurch.com. That's awakeningchurch.com. Finally, Pastor Ryan, for someone eavesdropping on our conversation today, maybe take a moment and just extend a personal invitation for them to come out and join church on a Sunday morning and see what God is doing.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, if you're searching or looking for a church home or just have questions about Jesus and spirituality, uh, we'd love to have you join us. Uh, It's a very casual environment uh, filled with lots of young people, but of every age and generation as well, lots of families. And um, uh, it's a moment where we uh, are not trying to have this great production, but we want to help you encounter the presence of Jesus. And so we have great music, we have great teaching, we have all those sort of things, but our heart is more than anything for you to experience community and the presence of Jesus.
2: Again, that's Awakening Church, online at awakeningchurch.com, awakeningchurch.com. Our thanks to Pastor Ryan Ingram, lead pastor, for joining us today. What a delight to visit with you. Hope we get a chance to do this again soon.
3: Absolutely. Thanks so much. Welcome. If you're new, my name's Ryan. We're thrilled to have you join us today. And today we're kicking off a series, as you've heard, called When We Pray. Why don't you go ahead and say that to your neighbor, when we pray. No, say it with conviction to your other neighbor, um, when we pray. N- Notice that it isn't um, if we pray. It's like, yeah, huh, maybe if 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 you're going to pray, yeah, maybe. Uh, or should you pray like this heaping guilt? Uh, well, you should. You ought to. But when we pray, and can you turn me down in the house? I'm a little loud. I'm going to get louder, and I don't want to annoy everyone. <laughs> um, thank you. Uh, but it's when we pray, because actually part of the human instinct is prayer. It's your natural instinct and response. Did you know that 71% of Americans report to praying regularly? Th- this is a little wild. 20% of agnostic and atheists say they pray daily. I know, right? I'm like, I, wait, I'm so confused at this moment. <laughs> Why? because there's something hardwired in you and me, this instinctual desire to connect and something beyond us that we're just designed for. There's something in us that knows that prayer's powerful even though we don't know how it works. Like that prayer changes things and that's why even people who wouldn't believe in um, prayer or God would even say, no, no, I'm sending you good Juju, okay, thoughts, too, or whatever. Yeah, good vibes. Because there's something about it. We just find that there's something other beyond us that we long to pray. And yet prayer, doesn't it, for most of us, it um, it often still remains mysterious, doesn't it? It's like, okay, does God really hear me? I mean, of all the billions of people on this planet, did he hear my one voice? Like, doesn't it feel like sometimes when you pray, like you're just praying and you're lifting your voice and it just rises to the ceiling and it hits it and then it falls flat to the ground like, it didn't break through. Whatever the ether, whatever that is, it did not break through. I'm like, did I use the right words? Is there some way to say it? Maybe I I wasn't in the right position. Like, like prayer remains this great mystery and this great need of the human soul. And so, how do we pray where we experience the presence and power of God? Because that's what you need. That's what we long for. That is the ache of the human heart. There is the deep, intrinsic desire of the human heart upon which only the very presence of God will satisfy. And how do you pray in such a way where you experience the presence and power of God? How do we pray in a way that develops this life-giving, soul-shaping relationship with our Heavenly Father? Not duty, not ought, not a list of rules, a checklist like, hello, I got it done. I woke up this morning, check, done, moved on. And you're like, it's just this rote activity. I do it because somebody told me to, but it has no impact into my life. You ever been there? Me too. How do you pray in a way that develops this life-giving? Not soul-sucking, life-giving. It's soul-shaping. It's what you're designed for, this relationship with your heavenly Father. Well, we're going to spend the next six weeks learning and growing and developing this as a community. And like Christina said, we have this journal that our team put together 40 days of prayer. And friends, I just got to let you know uh, that if you will dive into this together over the course of 40 days, you will then at the end begin to go, "Oh, I'm starting to get it. Oh, I'm starting to understand. Oh, I'm starting to get to know my heavenly Father." And it just gets deeper, and it gets richer. It gets more beautiful. And there's things about who God is that you go like, I I never would have imagined. And now I'm experiencing this life-giving, soul-shaping relationship. By the way, you were designed. You were created for a life-giving, soul-shaping relationship with your Heavenly Father. And prayer well, it's the pathway to experiencing intimacy with God. It's the pathway upon which we experience intimacy with God. And so, today we're going to talk about the basics of prayer. Go ahead and just turn to your neighbor and say basic. basic. And I'm not meaning it the way it does mean so today, um, the basics of prayer. Today we want to get back to like, how do we get to the foundation and the starting point together? Um, I like how Tim Keller talks about prayer. He says, Prayer is the only entryway into genuine self-knowledge. It is also the main way we experience deep change, the reordering of our loves. Prayer is how God gives us so many of the unimaginable things he has for us. Indeed, prayer makes it safe for God to give us many of the things we most desire. It is the way we know God, the way we finally treat God as God. Prayer is simply the key to everything we need to do and be in life. How do we learn to pray that way? Well, you know that the disciples, the only thing they asked Jesus, at least that we have recorded, to teach them. They said, Jesus, would you teach us something? And they didn't say, Jesus, teach us how to do all those miracles. Those are fantastic. That's amazing, right? They they didn't say, Jesus, that walking on water is pretty awesome. Um, can, Can we do that? They said, Jesus, would you teach us to pray? See, there's something about the way Jesus prayed that was radically different than the way everyone else prayed that was so intimate and engaging and soul-shaping that they said, I want what you have and the way you talk to God is the way I want to talk to God. I want that. Would you teach us that? And in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' you know, incredible, it's one of the greatest sermons ever, the greatest sermon ever. You know the lion's share of the sermon? Jesus is talking about prayer and life in the kingdom of God and this relationship with your heavenly Father. And in it, he begins to explain the basics of of prayer, of this foundation, of how do we do this? How do we engage in this ongoing love relationship with our Heavenly Father? If you got your Bibles, would you open up to Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. Matthew 6, verse 5. And Jesus says this, And when you pray, again, not if you pray, but when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask them. All right, here's what I want to do with our time. I want to first declutter prayer. Jesus is going to tell us actually a couple of ways not to pray. He's going to say, don't do this. And you just saw a couple of those in here. And then give us some really practical steps to begin developing intimacy uh, through prayer with God. What are some real practical ways that we can take steps today. All right, so decluttering prayer. Where does Jesus say, hey, let's drop the baggage off that we have with prayer. The first is prayer is not a performance. It is not a performance. It says when you pray, do not be like who? Anyone? Hypocrites. hypocrites. Who are the hypocrites? Thank you, one of you. (laughs) Pharisees. Yeah, the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were the religious elite. In fact, they began with very good intentions, by the way, back in the day to draw Israel into a purity and right relationship with God. Uh, they set up all these lists of rules to make sure they didn't uh, blow any of the other rules. So they had rule on top of rule on top of rule, and they heaped them on other people, but they didn't live them themselves, hence hypocrites. And he says, don't pray like the hypocrites. Now, in the ancient Jewish day, a devout Jewish man, he would first wake up in the morning and quote the great Shema. Hero O Israel, is the Lord your God. And the Lord is one. And then he would um, quote that in the evening. And then there would be three specific times throughout the day that they would pray. And often they would be praying, uh, you know, very um, scripted out or written prayers back. To God, Now, a Pharisee would be in full uh, garb, very ornately dressed to show the sign of their kind of piety and who they were. And during those times of prayer, uh, they would make sure they were in a very public place. Um, because, by the way, not everybody prayed three times a day and life was busy and full and there's lots of people going about their day and work and all these sort of things and so they would stand on the street corner oh lord you know and they would pray out loud so everyone would see them and jesus is saying don't be like that don't be like that prayer is not a performance it's not a performance for other people like when you're praying out loud in a group it's not somehow that other people think you're more spiritual but i think more often today for us it's we're trying to perform for god isn't it like i'm somehow trying to perform for you and if i kind of use churchy words or maybe even i change my voice when i pray you know like like, like maybe you'll hear me like I'm somehow performing this dance, and God, if you like it, then maybe you'll respond to me. Think about this. Religion is all about performance. Relationship is all about presence. It's all about presence. See, prayer is not a performance. It's about presence. It's about being. It's about keeping company with God being in his presence and enjoying him and him enjoying you. I like how C.S. Lewis said it. Um, He said, bring to God what's in you, not what ought to be in you. Like I think some of the ways we perform, isn't it, is like we bring what should be in us. Like this is the way I should pray or what I think God wants to hear from me. And if you ever read through the Psalms, you realize David just brought before God what was in him, and God met him there, where you just bring to him what's in you. You don't have to somehow, you know, measure up. Just bring to God who you are. Prayer is not a performance. Then we go on to see prayer is not a secret formula. He goes on and says, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans. And so you had these two different pictures in the ancient day of prayer. You had the Pharisees and how they prayed. And then you had uh, the pagans in the temple worship of all the gods and goddesses. And the way they prayed uh, was to evoke their God to move on their behalf. They would pray long, repetitious, loud, loud. And the longer and the louder and the more ecstatic that they became, they thought their God would actually hear them and respond. And if they were in real need, they would begin to cut themselves and do all sorts of things just to evoke the gods to respond. Jesus says prayer is not a performance and it's not a secret formula. There aren't these like magic words that if you use them, All of a sudden, like, oh, God's like, oh, yes, genie in the bottle. Yes, here I come. I'll come do that. There's not a length that is a proper length. I remember when I was, like, in my 20s, I was wanting to really learn how to pray, and someone said, you should pray 30 minutes a day. That's not bad. Keeps the devil away. I'm like, I don't know if that's true. Um, (laughs) And so I tried it. I couldn't do it. I run. I and I enjoy running, but I can run about three to five miles. If I tried to go run a marathon right now, I'd be dead. (laughs) That's a lot of the ways it is with us with prayer, too, is we kind of have, like, spiritual greed. I want to get all the way here. I'm like, no, you're right here at the five-minute range, not the 30-minute range, and there's no shame on that. Short prayers or long prayers, it's not like the longer it is, the more impactful it is. I remember my fifth grade Sunday school teacher, yes, fifth grade Sunday school teacher, like ruined prayer for me it 's kind of a strong statement, um, but it 's true, so here we go. Uh, you know he really did, and I, he was a well intended wonderful Pharisee, he really was it means good hearted and it was so dogmatic and I remember he asked me and I was the preacher 's son, he asked me to pray and and I get up there, pray, and I just say amen. He said, Ryan, in front of everybody, you have to say, in Jesus' name, amen. And you have to close your eyes. And you have to fold your hands. And, I mean, he was dogmatic. And every time then I came in there, I'm like, in Jesus' name, amen. As if it's this magical incantation. And if we say it, somehow God will respond. By the way, you can play with, pray with your eyes open or your eyes closed. God still hears you. I pray with my eyes open because of my fifth grade Sunday school teacher. (laughs) Seriously. Those words are powerful if we understand what they mean. In Jesus' name, amen. But a lot of times we just tag them on to the end. See, in Jesus' name, Jesus actually called us to pray in his name. He didn't mean just tag in Jesus' name at the end. You don't have to say in Jesus' name for it to be in Jesus' name. Let me explain. To pray or to speak Someone's name meant in a line with their character and their will. The character of Jesus, who you are, and your will, what you want to be done. That my prayer aligns with your character, who you are, and your will, what you want to be done. That's what it means to be in the name of Jesus, and when we say in the name of Jesus is what I'm saying is what I prayed was in alignment with your character and with your will. So by the way, when you say bless this food to my body and it's Taco Bell, it's not in align with his character or his will. And he cannot bless it. I'm sorry. God just says no. Ain't going to do it. (laughs) Right? It's in his name, his character. And then amen. Let it be so, is what the amen says. Let it be so. May it come about. I've prayed this prayer and I've thought about it. It's in line with your character, your will, and who you are. Let it be so. See, they are words powerful when we understand them. But they're not magical incantations or something secret formula. If I just say that, then I evoke God to somehow and work and move on my behalf. Decluttering prayer. It's not a performance. It's not a secret formula. Okay, so how do I develop intimacy with God in prayer? How do I take some of these steps? The very first step is we need to view prayer as necessary, not just a nice idea. A lot of us, I think, when we think about prayer is the same way I think about flossing. It's a nice idea. Now, for all you haters, um, I'm 41. I've never had a cavity. I know. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I don't know why I bowed. That was awkward. I'll never do that again. It actually bugs my wife because we'll go to the dentist and I, every time I, I do it tongue-in-cheek. What'd they say? I'm like, teeth are perfect. <laughs> I don't floss. I don't floss. I'm sorry. I don't, I, don't, I don't do it. But you know what I do do is when I go to the dentist, and hello, my dentist isn't here. Praise God right now. Um, but when I go to the dentist, they ask, how often do you floss? And my answer is the closest thing to lying but not lying. Not as often as I should. Which is true. <laughs> and that's kind of how we think about prayer. When it comes up, and even this conversation, there's like a little bit of a wave of guilt that comes over us because it's like, oh I I know I should. Not as often as I should. The first step into really beginning to develop prayer in this intimate relationship is we begin to shift. Oh no, it's necessary. It's not just a nice idea. Did you know Jesus said, when you pray, when you pray, when you pray, not if you pray? That that this is, again, it's the pathway. It's a pathway to experiencing intimacy with God. And Jesus, God himself in flesh, Notice this, like even when his life got busy, especially when his life got busy, he carved out time for prayer because he knew it was necessary. Notice this, Luke 5, 15 says, "Um, yet the news about him spread all the more so crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed by their sickness. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. Jesus gave a special time to prayer when life was unusually busy i just wonder what would happen and change in your life because what happens is when life gets unusually busy prayer is way off the table right it is for me so If we understood, oh, I have a good, loving, heavenly father who knows all things, who's all powerful, who understands my day, who has already seen what's going to happen in my day, wants to prepare me, wants to speak to me, encourage me, equip me. And if I stop and I meet with him, he may just want to move in my life to prepare me and use me for the day ahead. See, we've got to begin viewing prayer not just as a nice idea, but necessary. And then how how we approach God. You approach your heavenly Father who loves you. Let me ask you, who do you pray to when you pray? I mean, like, what picture comes to your mind? I think for many of us, the picture might be of a God that's down on you, might be of someone who's withholding, that like, you know, when you finally get your act right, then I'll actually, you know, give you something good. <coughs> A God with crossed arms, toe tapped, just waiting for you to blow it. Did you notice that Jesus said, Pray to your help me out? Father, your Father who sees. Think about that. The God of the universe, Jesus invites you to call Father, and he sees you. He sees what you're walking through. You're seen. You're not overlooked. You're not unseen. You're not invisible. you're, You're not just hoping somebody will notice you. And I know that for some is how you're walking through life, but your Father sees you, and he knows what you need even before you ask him. We take this for granted often in our day. In Jesus' day, the Jewish idea of God, and especially the name of God, was so sacred, so holy, you wouldn't even utter it. And for Jesus to then call God as Father was scandalous to them. He said, when you have God as your Father, what that means is you have access, 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 The way a daughter or son has access to a father. Uh, You have authority because you carry the family name. You don't come begging. You don't come hoping. You don't come wishing. You come to a father. In fact, a little bit later on, Jesus would say this in the Sermon on the Mount because I think our tension then with Father, isn't it true that like we have earthly fathers and many have had earthly fathers who have let us down, who have hurt us, who've wounded us, who've been absent or abusive. And our picture of God is just, gets wrapped up into that brokenness. And I love how Jesus then paints our Heavenly Father. Notice what he says. He says, Which of you, if your son asked for bread, will give him a stone? Um, Not many of you. uh, If he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Most of us wouldn't, and the ones that would should go to jail. Uh, (laughs) It's a true story. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. If we, as human parents, broken... And most of us know how to give good gifts to our kids. Notice this, how much more? What if in your mind, when you approach your heavenly father, you understood that you approach the God of the how much more, not the God holding out on you, the God who says, I have how much more. If you think as the best version of an earthly parent that you could come up with, God is how much more. He is your perfect heavenly father. How much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who love him? See how that changes When you approach that God, think about this. When you pray, you come. Listen, next slide. You come as wholly accepted. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to try to get it. You don't have to somehow eke your way. You're fully loved. Nothing you can do will ever change that reality. You're cherished daughter, son of a good, And loving Heavenly Father, think about this, who delights to hear your voice and loves to give you good gifts. That's who you approach. And so, how do we develop intimacy with God? We begin to understand it's necessary, not just a nice idea. Approach our Heavenly Father who loves us and then we have to set aside a specific time and a sacred space. Notice Jesus said, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who's unseen. Then your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. Set aside a specific time and a sacred place. Jesus modeled this. He had a time and place. Mark 1.35 says, very early in the morning, While it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Set aside a specific time. I have it on the calendar and then a sacred space. Your sacred space can be your couch. It can be your bed. It can be a coffee shop it can be your car it can be a walk on your lunch break but what is your sacred space where you just go man this space i know during other times it's an ordinary space but in this moment it is a sacred space and i meet with god and then set aside a time you might be an er er morning person or you might be an evening person well jesus was a morning person so no i'm just kidding you don't have to be a morning person But I think sometimes we think a certain time is a better time, don't we? And sometimes pastors like me go because we're often cerebral and uh, generally early risers and journalers and like, well, should I journal? I don't know. I like to. If it's helpful, wonderful. If not, don't. Freedom. But you have a specific time. If you're a morning person, maybe it's at lunch, maybe it's in the evening. Where he set aside a specific time to be with him. What time are you going to do it? Write it down, set it on your calendar. I like how Eugene Peterson said it. I can be active and pray, I can work and pray, but I cannot be busy and pray. I cannot be inwardly rushed, distracted, or dispersed in order to pray. I have to be paying more attention to God than what people are saying to me, more attention to God than to my clamoring ego. Usually, for that to happen, there must be a deliberate withdrawal from the noise of the day, a disciplined detachment from the insatiable self. And I got to give you a word of warning and at the beginning this will be a little bit challenging. In fact, I love how Tim Keller said it in his book on prayer because I want to highlight that this is going to be a process and a practice as you step into it. It's not going to be like, oh, this is amazing right at the beginning. It might be a little awkward and challenging. He wrote, most contemporary people base their inner life on their outward circumstances. Their inner peace is based on other people's valuation of them and on their social status, prosperity, and performance. If we give priority to the outer life, Silicon Valley, our inner life, he didn't write Silicon Valley, I did. Our inner life will be dark and scary. We will not know what to do with solitude. We'll be deeply uncomfortable with self-examination and we'll have an increasingly short attention span for any kind of reflection. And so it's going to be a process. That's why even with these booklets, like it can be five minutes or it can be 15 minutes. Just take those steps. Developing intimacy with God View prayer as necessary. We approach our perfect Heavenly Father who loves us. Set aside a specific time, a sacred place. And then finally, pray. Pray. You just got to pray. You can read about prayer. You can come listen to sermons about prayer. You can find the best podcast podcast. On prayer. And yet, you will not develop intimacy with God until you start praying. Now, think about this. Imagine if we were friends. And imagine if the only time I talked to you was about every three to four weeks when life was going really badly. And I just needed something from you. How good of a friendship would we have? I- imagine just maybe if you don't have kids, if that's your relationship with your kids. How good of a relationship would you have? Now, me and my kids, if they only come what need, I want so much more, but I'm not going to, I'm going to meet them in their need. See, part of the process is just beginning that conversation, beginning that relationship, and starting to get to know God and developing that. And that just begins with a consistency. That's why we're doing 40 days. We have it all outlined so you can just take that step together as easy as possible. Would you join us Because you'll be incredibly amazed at what God wants to do in you, what he wants to do through you, and the depth of relationship, his presence and power that he wants to meet you in on this journey. And so, I like how Richard Foster says it as we take steps forward. He says, the same way a small child cannot draw a bad picture, so a child of God cannot offer a bad prayer. Take the pressure off, Just start. Take the pressure off and just start and begin to learn how to pray together. And so, here's how I want to close our time. Jesus, the disciples asked him, teach us how to pray and he gave them the Lord's Prayer. And this is what comes directly next in the text on the Sermon on the Mount. I just want to take a moment and lead us in prayer. Not just talk about prayer, but lead us in prayer. Would you... Take a breath. Keep your eyes open or closed. Jesus says, this then is how you should pray. And we'll be walking through each of these stanzas each day for the next week. But I just wanted to get our hearts oriented. Begin first with worship. Our Father in heaven, how be your name. Literally how it means, let your name be sacred to me. I don't want to pull you down into my world. I always want to keep you in your proper place. And worship is ascribing proper worth to the greatness of who God is. Would you just begin by thanking God? Thank him for what he's done, where he's working, who he is. the next movement, one of surrender. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Would you just begin to pray that prayer, your kingdom done, your will be done in my marriage, in my singleness, in my finances, in my workplace, in my thought life as it is in heaven. And begin to surrender those areas where you go you know i want your kingdom and not my kingdom and then jesus moves to request give us this day our daily bread what do you need today Isn't it amazing that God invites us? He longs to hear our requests. He tells us to ask, to seek, to knock. What do you need today? What are the concerns of your heart, the worries? Bring those to him. And then confession, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Some of you walked in with shame and baggage that he does not want you to live in. There is therefore no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Where you confess it, you say, God, would you forgive me? And you leave it at the cross and you walk out free. And then Jesus closes with protection. Have you ever noticed that when you take a step towards God, it seems like all hell breaks loose? Maybe that habit that you had kind of under control, it raises its head. Maybe a relationship just begins to go south. Pray protection as you take this journey and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. God, would you protect me from me, my natural bent away from you? And would you protect me from the enemy who wants to entice and pull me away from you? For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory
2: forever and ever. Amen. Founding and senior pastor of Awakening Church of San Jose, Pastor Ryan Ingram.
1: This has been the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. To nominate your congregation for Church of the Week, please email us the name and address of your pastor and church, along with a link to your church's website to SalemSF.com. Again, that's the name and address of your pastor and church, along with a link to the website and email to salemsf.com. While all submissions will be considered, not every submission is guaranteed airtime. Thank you for joining us today, and be sure to tune in again next week at this time for the Church of the Week.